You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So the series we've been in is called Jesus, I Have My Doubts. And um, often Christian Church Sunday morning is kind of a, um, it's just all about motivational speaking to whip up the sentiments of people to be excited about being a Christian for one more week to give more to be more to do more and especially to give more to the church and um, I'm not always sure if that the message that comes across I love having it up in prayer and worship and the message but I'm not sure if that doesn't communicate subtly that you never can be or should never have any doubts at all, any weaknesses of any type, any questions that if you're facing anxiety or worry or depression or sadness or grief, well, don't talk about it. And if you do, just expect kind of people to say, um, well, nothing much and just walk away. Or to say, or to say, well, maybe you need to pray about that more. Somehow you must not have a strong enough faith if you're not, um, always up, positive, confessing the right things, have this understanding. And so, you know, kind of almost a Sunday morning becomes a believe in believism. You know, believing in believing, having faith in your own faith. Faith is not in itself. Faith, according to the scriptures, is always trust in God. And sometimes, sometimes, and for long periods of time sometimes, God does not seem present, but absent. So today we are going to uh, be in a message that's going to be a little down at the beginning. Sorry. Um, it's, oh, we're looking at one of the darkest psalms in all of the Psalter. There's 150, and there's two psalms particularly that end on a very down note with not much hope in them at all. And I've never preached on one of these before. No. Have you? (laughs) We don't even read these two too often because they're kind of like, oh my gosh, it ends. Um, So Psalm 39 and Psalm 88. Today we're looking at Psalm 88. And we're meeting a man named Haman, H-E-M-A-N, and not the same one that's in um, the book of Esther, but Haman, who is a son of, or a musician and a poet with the sons of Korah. And he writes... This psalm, 88 himself, and he is experiencing both objectively on the outside, exteriorly, and subjectively on the inside, um, what we'd probably today call depression. Okay? He calls it darkness. And um, that's kind of the topic. The last word of the psalm in the Hebrew is the word darkness. It's the word that comes up quite often. We're going to read that psalm today, and then we're going to talk about it under four points. But let's read Psalm 88 to start with. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength." like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. 
You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the region dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day shall I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Are your righteousness in the land of the forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I have suffered your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Wow. Darkness is the theme in this psalm. And you might go like, why in the world is this in the Bible? Why would it be in the Bible? Wouldn't the edit, you know, the Psalms were edited by somebody. Somebody collected the 150 Psalms together. And why would this one have stuck? <laughs> okay, you, you kind of wonder that. We're going to listen. I think there's a good reason for things like this to be in the Bible. We're going to look at this under four points today. I know, four points. Four faster points than normal. <laughs> First of all, people of faith can be in darkness for a long time. Secondly, darkness is a great place to learn of God's grace. Thirdly, darkness weans us from a false faith. And fourthly, darkness, though it feels final, is not the last word. Now, the first point is going to be a little dark, a little down. And that is, people of faith can be in darkness for a long time. And people of faith, you... Um, Haman was a person of faith. This was not something that he came up with because he was a person that didn't believe in God. He cries out to God. The first line of the psalm says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. He's actually a person of faith, believing, but he feels abandoned, darkness. For all his twists and terms, Haman still trusts God, but God does not seem to be there. So it seems in the psalm, if you kind of read through it and not really read between the lines, we don't, what's great about the psalms, by the way, is almost every one of the psalms, if you read them as kind of part of your prayer book and your daily devotional time, um, they're generic enough, general enough that they fit. Like, I don't have to have a specific disease. I don't have to specific issue going on. Um, enemies are described, but very generally. Um, here, um, the situation is such that it seems the most we can get from Haman is that he is probably facing death. He's close to it in some form. He's probably got some type of sickness. And all of his friends, his family, have abandoned him, and he's left alone. So circumstantially, on the outside, that's what's going on. But maybe the harder part with all of this is what's going on in the inside, the subjective experience. Inwardly, 
He is questioning where God is. He is facing what God's, uh, God seems to be hiding his face from him. And I, I would say that that's kind of what the feeling of depression can be. I've, now, when, whenever you deal with a sermon like this, and, um, or any sermon, really, sometimes this is such one-way communication. It's like, I don't have all the answers to all the situations, and I don't know what everybody has been on these. You know, we've done stuff on, recently on anxiety. Um, in a couple weeks, it's going to be on fear. We've done on doubt. And it's more like, the best things that we could do is you're, if you're struggling with any, any of these issues, which we all do, right, is to have conversations with others. And um, don't expect like this sermon to answer everything, nor like fit everything that's gone on in your life or mine. Um, but hopefully there's some of that that's working. But uh, depression can be very difficult. In fact, I think in some ways it's more difficult than outward circumstantial situations. You know, because if on the outside things are going badly, but on the inside you're saying, I know God is with me, I feel God's presence, it seems close, that's one thing. You can kind of get through almost anything like that. But if on the outside things aren't going well, and on the inside you're feeling a deep darkness and sadness or absence of God at the same time, that is more difficult. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, The Problem of Pain. Mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, he said, but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It's easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. Yeah. I said this is kind of a downer. And you're going like, ugh. Boy, I don't come to church for this. I get it. I get it. And yet, the, here's, here's, here's the point. The Bible deals with reality. The Bible deals with reality. There's kind of an upside to the downside of this point. The Bible's not pulling anything over on you. It's not trying to, to get you to deny the reality of your life or the human condition, but it's going to show you a deeper reality even than your experiences. Um, I'm going to uh, quote a classic work, The Princess Bride. <laughs> Do you like that movie? The book is even better. We read it in high school my senior year. We were done with, I don't know, what did we, Crime and Punishment and all those books. And the last thing is our, um, <laughs> is our uh, senior um, English uh, teacher gave us The Princess Bride to read, and it was so much fun. Um, so the dread uh, pirate Roberts fires back at the princess. She's kind of, Buttercup is kind of a flake, and um, she's kind of like Pollyanna about life in general. But dread Prince Robert says to the Princess Bride at a moment, life is pain, highness. <laughs> Anyone who says differently is selling you something. We're not selling you anything here. Christianity doesn't try to sell you anything. Now, I'm sorry to say, there are some churches and there are some versions of Christianity that are not really the real thing in some ways, or they're a little off on this, and they may be trying to sell you stuff, but the real version is saying this is what life is. In fact, it's not the, Jesus didn't try to sell 
people anything. He was pretty honest. He said in John 16, um, in this world you will have, do you know what the word is? Tribulation. Does that sound like fun? No. No. And he doesn't say, but when you believe in me now, you won't have any more tribulation. No. He says, in this world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I don't like sprinkle angelic dust on you and all of a sudden everything goes well. But he overcomes the world by going through the tribulation himself. And you talk about tribulation with a capital T when you're talking about Jesus. So, like we said, you can have long periods of darkness as a believer. Now, um, I get the hunch, I think I was like this too, that when you become a Christian, there's kind of this new euphoria, newness to it all, and you think, oh, wow, now, you know, God has entered into my life, Jesus is my Savior, and now everything's going to start running smoothly. You know, you've just got this high about life because of understanding God's mercy and grace and forgiveness, and all of a sudden you start kind of like getting your act together, you stop doing certain things, you start doing new things, and then all of a sudden you think, I've cleaned up my act, and life is going to be just wonderful from now on. You know, kind of the before and afters that we have. Before, Nutrisystem, this is my shape. After, now, look at me. Yeah, and my wife, who's a dietitian, wants to say, let's try about another year after that and see what's happened. Because most diets like that don't work for the long haul. And maybe for a short period of time, you will feel, yeah, life is wonderful. Jesus loves me. I love others. I am able to reconcile, do all this stuff. But then there's a point where it ain't just so. Life is tough. As the dread pirate Robert said, life is pain, Highness. Honestly, you know someone who didn't have to clean up his act, had a perfectly clean record, and his life was pain. He ended up being spit upon and crucified. And Jesus himself says, if that's what they do, to the teacher, what are they going to do to the pupil? If that's the master, what's the servant going to have? So what happens often, and this is true, expectations do matter. And if you expect life to be smooth and wonderful and great because now Jesus is with you and breezy and exciting, and then when life becomes dull, it gets even more difficult to bear. And it's so easy to then, because of your expectations being one way and it turns out to be another, to slip into such deep kind of gray, black sadness just everything being in the shadows. So, it's a tough point. But I think there's an upside to it to understand that even Christians, believers, strong believers, can have dark times and they can last a while. Aren't you glad that's the worst of the four? We're on to the next. Darkness is a great place to learn of God's grace. Now, Haman writes some things in the psalm that seem almost to the point where it's like, what is he saying to God? I can't believe he put it that way. Uh, For instance, in verses 6 to 8, you have put me in the depths of the pit. 
Your wrath lies heavy on me. You have caused my companions to shun me. Do you understand? Basically, he's blaming God for his situation. Bluntly, he's saying, I didn't stumble into this darkness. You pushed me into it. And then it's not a prayer. It's not even a lament where he just, he is accusing God at this point in time. And then on top of that, he starts to interrogate him. He says in Psalm 88, verse 10, do you work wonders for the dead? Do you departed raise? In other words, <laughs> when I'm dead, are you going to be satisfied then? Is that what you want? Me to be finally in the grave? And that's when things are going to turn around? Come on. It's an interrogation. He is wrestling with God. He's angry with God. He sarcastically asks these questions. And then he adds to this in verse 15, afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. In other words, he's saying, this has always been the way. Now, is Haman being realistic about his life at this point in time? I don't think quite so. We'll find out a little more later. But let me tell you, when you are struggling with that inner darkness, that feelings of depression and sadness, it colors everything. It makes everything gray. And it, it, somehow there's this weird mental filter that all you can focus on are the negatives and you can't see any of the positives. It's like tunnel vision where everything good around you is gone, and all you can see is, ah, it's always been this way. It's always going to be this way. It's always going to feel this way. And he says, at the end of this prayer, <laughs> darkness is a better friend than you are to me, God. Now that <clears throat> is chutzpah, isn't it? To talk to God like this? Boy, it is... It seems like blasphemy or disrespect to call God more or less bad rather than good. How in the world did this get into the Bible, right? I'm glad it's there. This is how Derek Kidner says it. Um, he's a commentator. He's written a number of books, but um, a commentary on the Psalms. He wrote, the very presence of these prayers, so Psalm 88, Psalm 39, in scripture, it's a witness to God's understanding. God knows how men speak when they are desperate. You know, God wants you to know that he understands your anger and your depression and your sadness and your despair and your grief. He can handle your anger. You don't have to be nice when you pray. You don't have to be polite. You don't have to fear that he's going to get upset with you. It's more like when parents are dealing with a screaming, protesting, temper tantrum uh, making child who's belligerent, who con is totally confused and is accusing the parents of terrible things. And they still embrace that child. They still welcome that child. They still love that child. That is your God to you in those moments. God takes our worst and he gives us his best at those moments. He is a God of grace. He knows how we speak when we're desperate. He says, I'm your God not because you're happy all the time. I'm your God not because it's easy to be with you. I'm your God not because you're going to show how good I am to others. I'm not your God when you just say the right things about me. I'm your God, period. I am faithful to my promise even when you cannot understand it. 
Do you realize how liberating that is? That God would say, yeah, let's put that in the Bible. I know that happens. I'm okay. I'm still going to be your God in the middle of that. That's liberating. So you can learn of God's grace during those difficult times that he hasn't abandoned you. And I think also darkness weans us from a false sense of faith, a false faith, our third point. You know, I never want to go through dark moments, and I don't know if you have. Um, most likely you've had. Difficult periods are tough, um, and sometimes they last a long time, and I never want to go through them, but man, so often I look back and go like, it was good, I did. I might not have seen the touch of God in the moment, but I can look back and see the trace of God and what he was doing during that dark time. One biblical character, um, and I was going to preach on him this week, but I preached on him before uh, here at Thrive a couple of years ago, is Elijah. In, in, Eli uh, in 1 Kings chapter uh, 19, 18 and 19, Elijah goes from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. Um, he um, has this great victory at Mount Carmel where he, um, you know, Jezebel and King Ahab are against him and he comes up courageously and prays and God um, brings down fire from heaven to his altar. The prophets of Baal, hundreds of them are slain. And after that, it seems like the expectations that Elijah had is, Ooh, I'm ready for the ticker tape parade. I'm going to come in now to Samaria, the capital, and everybody's going to just fall down and worship the true God. There's going to be a revival that breaks out. The king is either going to, uh, you know, <clears throat> repent or be toppled off his throne. Everything's going to go good. Instead, he comes into Samaria, and all he gets is a threat from Jezebel saying, you're dead. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to get rid of you. So he runs out into the wilderness. He leaves everyone behind. He drops down, wants to die. And God comes to him at Mount Horeb, then later on, not in the power and the glory and the might and, you know, the earthquake and the fire, but in a still, small voice. He comes so approachable and intimately to him so that Elijah is weaned from his false understanding of who God is and what God is about and how God works. And here's the deal. Most of us, when we enter in, like I've mentioned before, um, we become Christians. We do so not just because God, you know, the truth is there, the facts are laid out or something like that. Um, oh, of course, Jesus must be the Messiah, the King, all this stuff. We come because we get something out of Christianity. It might be that we get a sense of purpose. We might get a sense of um, God fills our loneliness and we've got now fellowship and community or there's answered prayers or there's whatever. It's a transactional relationship at first. I get something from God, a feeling of freedom and the lack of all of that stuff. And then the tough times come and God is weaning us from the false faith of that we're really into it for the results rather than for the God who is. And during those tough times, I think he's asking us, so do you love me because I'm good to you? Because you get perks and benefits? Or do you love me because I'm good? 
We've all had fair weather friends, have we not? I'm not sure why we call them friends. But they're around you when it's fun and exciting and they can get something from you and they drop you when all of a sudden it isn't. And God says, okay, I get it. But I'm going to build in you a true faith and a faithfulness that during the tough times you even grow closer to me. To me. And you stop worship, uh, loving me simply because I'm lovely to you. Instead of using me to love yourself, you're going to end up truly loving me. In God's absence, in those times of darkness, God is weaning you from a false understanding of who he is and what faith really is. He's forming a relationship with you that is deeper and more profound. Hannah Hennard, she wrote a book that I really liked in college, and I need to probably read it again. It's a kind of a metaphor. It's called Hind's Feet in High Places. It's about a shepherd and a little sheep who's called Much Afraid and how through time he grows in her an understanding of what faith really is. And she wrote one time, she goes, it is better to go stumbling and weeping and crawling like a worm along the way of love than to give up and choose some other way. In other words, we may do a bad job of it, but it's better to be with God who loves us and to go the way of his love rather than to give up and say, you know what, I'm just going to have an easier life than this. That's what faith understands. It might have been easier for Haman to give up to reject God after, you know, writing this psalm. But do you notice he keeps still writing the psalm all the way to the end? He's still crying out to God, even in this psalm. And I guess this brings up the fourth point, darkness feels final. It's not. The beginning of the psalm, there's some headings over these psalms. And this one says, it's a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah for the director of music, according to Mahalath Leonoth whatever, we don't know what that means, and uh, a mascal of Haman and the Ezraite. So he was a musician. He was a poet. He wrote some of the psalms. He was with this band called the Sons of Korah that wrote a number of the psalms in the 40s and in the 80s, like 88, who was part of this community that wrote a psalm even like Psalm 46 that starts, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. He wrote that too. He was a part of the group that prayed this, sang it, lived it out too. Not just Psalm 88. Few people in this world have had the impact of somebody like Haman that you've never even heard his name before. For 2,800 years now, he would never have believed it that people would recite and hold on to and memorize Psalms like 46. And that his word, his condition, his situation, inspired by God, would inspire so many and encourage so many for so long. Yeah, darkness. Depression's a tough place to be. It's not the last place to be. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you realize this, but some of the greatest people of faith throughout history from what we can gather, 
it, you know, it's really hard in retrospect to look back hundreds of years and say, oh, well, this person is diagnosed. You can't diagnose people in history. And yet, you can take their words of the darkness that they experienced. So you have people like Mother Teresa, who recently passed away, and you read her works, and you see her letters that were unpublished and how much loneliness and darkness and void that she had, and yet a strong faith at the same time. You can go back to Martin Luther, who many people believe was struggling with depression. Or people like mystics like St. John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila. St. John of the Cross himself coined the phrase, the dark night of the soul, and what God was doing through that. And what they learned, I think, is also located in another psalm, Psalm 139, 12. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. That God is in the darkness. That God is personally in the darkness when you are feeling nothing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called um, The Prayer Book of the Bible, The Psalms. And in it, he says, the Psalter is a prayer book of Jesus Christ in the truest sense of the word. He prayed the Psalter, and now it has become his prayer for all time. We understand how the Psalter can be prayer to God and yet God's own word precisely because we encounter the praying Christ. Because those who pray the Psalms are joining in with the prayer of Jesus Christ. Their prayers reaches the ears of God. Christ has become their intercessor. You know, Haman experiences feeling outside of friends abandoning him, people looking at him as cursed, feeling he's under the wrath of God and the inner darkness of abandonment. Haman experienced it partially, and we know Christ experienced this psalm totally. Haman felt it was, uh, what he felt was somewhat, but Jesus completed this psalm. So in the Gospel of Matthew, we know that these themes come up, and it's not just by chance at all. Where Matthew 27 says, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And by the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Ele, Ele, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was in absolute darkness, abandoned by his father. I might feel abandoned at times or lonely or isolated or in some kind of grayness or state of depression, but Jesus objectively and completely was there alone. God forsaken. Yes, the Son of God forsaken by God himself. So that God, even in my darkest moments, would never leave me. You know, um, depression is very difficult. And um, I know it somewhat personally because um, it's part of our family tree. Um, I, I, if you trace it back a generation or two, you can see it in different places. And so there's genetic components, there's medical components, there's circumstantial components, there's family system components, all that stuff that's going on. It's not, it's, so it's not like, okay, it's just a spiritual issue by any means. But when you faith, face this darkness, you don't need a simplistic answer from, you know, well, just believe more and everything will be fine some formula that says, well, you must be messing up if you feel that way. Or that you somehow don't have faith that you would face depression. Here Haman, a believer, 
is going through a very dark time. But I know also Haman was part of the sons of Korah. I know he didn't keep this to himself. Why? Because it's in the Bible. He shared this psalm with others. Otherwise, we wouldn't have it. It ended up in the Psalter. It was shared with the whole sons of Korah. It was part of his community. And they decided legitimately to say, yes, this is part of Scripture. This is inspired of God. This is reality. So don't face whatever it is, however complex it is, whatever causes it may be from chemical imbalances to genetic issues to all sorts of predispositions we may all have. You don't need to face any of this alone. In fact, this is what we have as community. Mallory uh, McDuff recently wrote, there are so few places where we can bring our raw emotions without a self-conscious need to explain or escape to the nearest bathroom, which happens when we get teary-eyed at work or in line at Home Depot. Perhaps church is one of the, those safe, last safe havens where we can cry in public for no reason. A southerner by birth and daughter of the, an Episcopal priest, my mother always told me that church was the best place to cry. I hope that's true here small groups, home huddles, wherever, that we rejoice with those who rejoice, we weep with those who weep. We're going to listen to others. There's nothing that you are facing that we can't face together. And I like this too. There's nothing I've faced in life that a good resurrection won't cure. When Haman wrote these last rhetorical questions, do you work wonders for the dead? <laughs> do the departed rise up to praise you? He may not have realized it, but when Jesus prayed this prayer, the answer is, yep, I do work wonders for the dead. I do rise up the departed to praise me because I am the resurrection, the life. He does work wonders. And he works wonders through our darkness because he's in the midst of it. So our four points, people of faith can be in darkness. Darkness is a great place to learn. Darkness weans us from a false faith. And darkness is not the last word. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this day, for our time together in your word, for a tough psalm and a tough, tough, but real issue that we are facing these days, Lord. In the last couple of years of this pandemic and the times that we've gone through of job loss and isolation and all sorts of issues, Lord, and stresses, anxieties, Lord, we've all had those moments of despair and some for long periods of time through grief and loss, Lord God. Teach us, Lord. Well, just teach us. Teach us of your love, your mercy, that you are in the darkness with us. The darkness is as light to you, that though we don't recognize it at the time, you will bring us through. Lord God, we lift up to you, Lord. Um, well, lots of things that are going on, a number of people who need your healing, care, and touch. We place them before you, and we pray um, that you would bless them and keep them in your care, Lord God. So for uh, Jim, who is uh, now in um, assisted living or rehab, 
we pray your healing. For Mike, as she continues her, uh, her recovery from her knee, for others with different ailments that we know of, and for so many in our, that it's not a physical ailment, but that emotional, mental issue, Lord, that they're struggling with. We just pray, Lord, that we're going to turn those over to you. And we're gonna, uh, we ask, Lord, that you make us a community where we can uh, embrace people in tough times. Lord God, um, we ask that you would now come to us in this moment as well in a time of communion, in a time where we get to offer back to you our first fruits, and then a time where we receive from you your goodness and grace personally. You are our light in the darkness. You know what darkness is because you went through it yourself, Lord Jesus. You are a friend to each one of us. We thank you for these things. Bless our time, Lord. Come near to us as we draw near to you. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.